Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to our East Campus this morning, the Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> Great to see you today. As Reg mentioned, we are starting a brand new six-week sermon series on the book of Psalms, and we're going to begin today by looking at Psalm 8. I read a formational book in my own life years ago called The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozier. And in it, he said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I like that. I agree with that. And so I decided to start off with a psalm today that reminds us just how great, how big, how majestic our God really is. First, I want to take a few moments to sort of introduce our series. So first, Psalms is this collection, a beautiful collection of 150 songs and poems and prayers of God's people from Israel's ancient history. And the Psalms are important because they help us give voice to our own emotions and our own experiences in life. And because they point us to a God who meets us in all of our circumstances. I find the Psalms to be a tremendous source of encouragement and strength and hope, and I know you do as well. Second, I want to encourage you to check out this website. It's a great introduction that goes much deeper than we have time for today. It's called thebibleproject.com. And uh, if you want to learn more about Psalms, how they're composed, kind of just would encourage you strongly to, to check out that website. It's eight or nine minutes, so obviously we don't have time for that today, but it's a lot of fun. So we're starting in Psalm 8 today, as I said. Another reason for starting here is simply because this is one of my personal favorites. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Psalm 8. If you need one, feel free to get up and go get one or open up your phone, your device, and join me in Psalm 8. Find your sermon notes. Open them up on your app as well. And let's start with this. Here's the background of this particular psalm. We know from the words added at the beginning, we call that the superscription. We know who the author was, and we... Don't know, however, exactly when he wrote it. Psalm 8 was written by the shepherd boy whom God turned into a king. By a boy who became a man after God's own heart. A young man that we know by the name of David. The superscription also says, to the choir master according to the gittith. We don't know for certain what that term gittith means. We assume that it's some kind of a stringed musical instrument. Maybe some kind of harp, guitar, maybe a uh, violin like Angie was playing today. We don't know, but uh, it's a musical term most likely. And in terms of theme, Psalm 8 explores God's majestic splendor and our puny insignificance by comparison. And yet at the same time, it also reminds us that God has created us in his image and he has graciously crowned us with his glory and majesty. He's assigned us the role of ruling over his creation as part of that. And that's pretty amazing stuff. And all of these thoughts should lead us to this wonderful place of worship and adoration. So let's work our way through Psalm 8 now, verse at a time, beginning with David's invitation to praise and worship the Lord because his name is majestic in all the earth. The Lord's name is majestic in all the earth. David begins and ends with this chorus. Verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. 
The Lord displays his glory in the earth and in the heavens. And trying to explain that or comment on that is sort of like trying to explain the splendor of the Grand Canyon. Words don't really do it justice. You just sort of need to get out of the way and let people see it for themselves. And so David begins with the exclamation, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. So let's dissect that a little bit. The words, O Lord, our Lord, are two Hebrew names for God, both translated into the English by the word Lord, but notice the first one is all caps to differentiate them. That's, the first one is the Hebrew word Yahweh, God's personal covenant name for himself. It stems from the Hebrew verb to be. God revealed it for the first time to Moses at the burning bush when he said, I am who I am. He introduced himself as Yahweh. And it points to God's eternal self-existence, the fact that he is the only uncreated being. He's the one who made the universe out of absolutely nothing. He's Yahweh. And the second Lord there is the Hebrew word Adonai, meaning master, sovereign one, or Lord. The creator God is also the one who made us to have a relationship with him. This is a more relational term. Though he's eternal and totally separate from his creation, he's graciously condescended to have a personal relationship with those of us that he's made. He's our sovereign Lord. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. That word majestic implies royalty, a concept that as Americans we don't fully appreciate, I'm sure. One of my girls asked me this week to tell what does majesty mean, and I reminded the girls of the shows that they have watched about the royal family in England. Remember what they call the queen? Your majesty, right. And the Hebrew word specifically here means noble, glorious, excellent, or famous. When Israel celebrated God's mighty deliverance through the Red Sea, excuse me, in the Exodus, they sang... Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? David says further, David says further that it is God's name which is majestic. And his name refers to all that he is, who he is, and all that he has done. And David also says that the majesty of God's name is seen in all the earth and above the heavens. In other words, God's glory is so great, it not only fills our earth, it fills the entire universe. I wonder how many times David, as a shepherd boy, looked up at the stars in the night sky and was moved to worship God. How many times had he pondered the majesty and the greatness of God with such a panoramic view of the heavens? We'll come back to that idea when we get to verse 3, so let's keep going for now. But as David's heart swelled with praise, next he says, The Lord displays his glory also through children. David understood that in spite of all of the evidence around us for God's glory and creation, there are still going to be opponents who resist him. 
They often have a presuppositional bias against God. They, uh, they don't want to be responsible to someone. They want to be the Lord of their own lives, and so they have no place for God. How does God deal with such enemies? David says this in verse 2. He says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So what does David mean by that? I think the irony is that little children often praise God with such sincerity, while adults often reject God in their own self-sufficient pride. Have you noticed that? They don't want to submit to a higher power, so they become enemies of God. David touches here on a very familiar theme in Scripture, the idea that God uses the weak to display his own glory and strength. 1 Corinthians 1.27, for example, says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And it's hard to think of anything weaker or more helpless than a little baby or a small child. And yet the God of the universe has chosen them to display his glory and strength. By the way, I think it's significant that Jesus quoted this verse at his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Remember that? Remember his enemies were offended. They demanded that Christ silence the crowds and the children who were singing his praise. The crowds were, were saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the religious leaders said, stop them. In, in his commentary on Psalms, James Boyce writes, and I quote, if, if these leaders of the people had been indignant before, they must have become nearly catatonic now. For in identifying the praise of the children of Jerusalem with Psalm 8, Jesus not only validated their words, showing them to be proper, he was indeed the son of David, the Messiah. He was also interpreting their praise as praise not merely of men, but of God. Since the psalm says that God has ordained praise for himself from children's lips. End quote. So, thus the Lord overcomes his enemies by the actions of little children and the words they speak and sing through their simple faith. So David's first point is that we should worship the Lord because he is majestic, because his name is majestic in all the earth. And he continues now his praise as he contemplates once again the heavens above. And the idea that we're going to see coming through so strongly here is this, that the Lord has entrusted his glory and authority to us, to mankind. He's entrusted his glory and authority to man. So again, you can almost imagine David as a young man lying on a hillside outside of Bethlehem, his father's sheep bedded down around him for the night. And David looking up into the night sky, just filled with wonder and awe. Something like that, that kind of an experience, probably inspired David to write these words in verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place... What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David looks up into the vastness of the night sky and he sees it all as the work of God's hands, his fingers. He somehow set them in their appointed orbits, put them in just the right place. 
And David thinks to himself, how small am I? And then he also marvels at the fact that God cares for him personally. In summary, David is marveling that compared to the vastness of God's creation, we are puny and insignificant or small. Of course, David had no telescope to show him just how big the universe really is. But even with a naked eye, it's so amazing to look up at the night sky. I remember as a young man how I loved to sleep out under the stars and watch the shooting stars and look at the different formations. It's just awe-inspiring to view God's creation in that way. So this photo is a photo of our Milky Way, not something we can see with the naked eye. This is a view through a telescope. Somewhere in there is our galaxy, I mean our uh, solar system and the Earth, and it's so small that that it's indistinguishable. I can't point it out uh, on a photograph like this. And it reminds me of David's words elsewhere. The heavens declare the glory of God. Listen, friends, God is amazing. He is so glorious. He is indescribable. Consider just the sheer immensity of outer space, the universe, and the coordination of all that he created. They say that spacecraft travel today approximately 36,000 miles per hour. I've never gone that fast. Probably most of us haven't. 36,000 miles per hour. But let's suppose that you could travel even faster. Let's say you could travel the speed of light. 186,000 miles per second is how fast the... Per second, not per hour. Per second is how fast light travels. 19,000 times faster than manned spacecraft can. Just in case you were asleep in science class, let me say that again. Light travels at 186,000 miles a second. That means a beam of light can circle the Earth seven times every second. That's fast. Okay? But that's what we must resort to to measure our universe, so vast is it, so immense is it, that we have to use light years to measure it. So if you and I could travel at the speed of light, it would take us a mere eight minutes to go from here to the sun. And then to go from the sun to the center of the Milky Way behind me, that would take 33,000 years traveling at the speed of light. The Milky Way belongs to a group of some 20 galaxies known as the local group, and to cross that group of galaxies, it would take us two million years traveling at the speed of light. And to cross the entire universe, it would take 20 billion light years. That's just the known universe because we keep discovering. We make new telescopes and find out it's bigger yet. 20 billion light years to travel across the known universe today. Listen, the God we worship is indescribable. That's the work of his fingers. He made the universe. He's beyond our wildest dreams. Don't sell him short. Don't count him out because God is ginormous. Okay, nothing is too difficult for him. He's greater than every thought you or I have ever had about him. The prophet Isaiah wrote this. He said, to whom will you compare me? 
Who is my equal? asked the Holy One. Look up into the heavens. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. Because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single one of them is missing. Friends, we have to right-size our God. He's bigger than we have ever thought. It's 100,000 light years across our galaxy and 20 billion light years across the known universe. Listen, you and I are small, <laughs> so small. And so we can imagine David looking up into the majesty of the night sky, filled with awe at all that God had made and realizing to himself, I am so small, I feel insignificant. How could a God who created all of this beauty be concerned with me? And yet he is. Compared to the vastness of the universe, what is man got, that you, God, are mindful of us or care what happens to us? It doesn't make any sense, but we know it's true. Even though we are a teeny, tiny little people living on this little speck called Earth, floating through the cosmos God has made, he knows us. He calls us each by name. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows your thoughts and my thoughts even before we think them. David says here he cares for us. He's aware of us. He loves us. And he invites us into a relationship with himself that will never end. How amazing is that? Well, the psalmist continues to ponder creation, noting next, noting in wonder that in spite of our insignificance, God has appointed us to rule over his creation. After asking the question, what is man that you're mindful of him, David answers his own question in verse 5. He says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Yeah, we're small, we're insignificant, and yet he has crowned us with glory and honor. Please notice the, the words here, heavenly beings. The words David used here, or actually the word he used here is the word, Hebrew word Elohim, normally translated God. There's another usual word for angel. Some translations translate it heavenly beings. I like that translation because it's vague enough. Uh, some translations translate it, you made him a little lower than God, and some translate it a little lower than the angels. I slightly lean toward the little lower than God translation because it seems to be a reference back to Genesis 1.26 where it says that God created mankind in his image and likeness and in the same context he goes on to say Genesis says that he created us and gave us dominion over his creation to rule over his creation just as David is describing here. However, whether David meant he made us a little lower than God or a little lower than the angels. Either way, we should be exhilarated by what he's saying. The point is that mankind has dignity. Yes, we're small, but God has given us special dignity. Nowhere is man's dignity asserted more clearly and boldly than here in Psalm 8. We're not just like the rest of his creation. We're not like the other Things he, the animals he put here on earth. But David's just getting started unpacking what he means here. Look at verse 6. 
He says, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Let me stop there. Mark Twain is credited with the saying, the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. <laughs> the most striking thing, perhaps, about Psalm 8 is its affirmation that God's majesty made man and our work here on earth important. Think of it. God's purpose for mankind is to rule over his creation, to rule over the earth. We're given this dignified role by the creator himself. So we don't own this world. We're just given dominion over it while we're alive. He's the king. He's delegated his authority to us to rule over his creation. And we are responsible to him for this stewardship. This psalm is a clarion call to live at full potential in the sphere of the kingdom of God entrusted to us. Beloved, you've been given a stewardship by God to rule over a part of his creation. Think about that. Next, David enumerated the extent of this dominion by blurting out in wonderment, you've, you've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. I think I've shared with you before how much I love animals, especially sea life. But when I was a very young man, I, I had this dream of owning a zoo. And much to my sister's chagrin, because I showed her my plans to turn her bedroom into part of my zoo. <laughs> and when I got older, I was more interested in being an oceanographer. And when I turned 50, God gave the opportunity to fulfill a lifelong dream of learning to scuba dive. That was, such was my life for sea, or love for sea life. And one of the highlights of my life was about 10 years ago, learning to be certified as a scuba diver and going with Jackie to the Great Barrier Reef and scuba diving there for several days. Such beauty, such majesty God has created. But whether it's underwater sea life or some animal out in the wild or even our pets in our homes, I think God has just given us this love of his creation. And as we ponder this and the words that we've just read in this beautiful song, I invite you to watch a video clip now that reminds us of the beauty of God's creation. Enjoy this. Isn't God amazing? Amen. Amen. His creation is beautiful, but ultimately it points us to the one who created it all. And who has given us a special relationship with it. Indeed, our God is truly indescribable. And now as we think about our high calling and our responsibility to rule over God's creation, sometimes we can't help but ponder the why. Why is this world such a mess? In spite of all the advances technologically and in modern science, you know, why is this world so tainted from sin? Why the pollution? Why all the war? Why all the inhumanity? The psalmist doesn't refer to it here in Psalm 8, but the Bible explains elsewhere that the reason for our failure to live up to our dominion is because of the fall. The first Adam rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden. 
James Boyce again puts it like this. Men and women have turned their backs on God, and since they will not look upward to God, which is their privilege and duty, they actually look downward to the beasts and so become increasingly like them. End quote. Well, the solution to the human problem comes from the New Testament, not from Psalm 8, and its use of this psalm that we're looking at today. The author of Hebrews reminds us that Psalm 8 is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. It's ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. He quotes, the um, writer of Hebrews quotes this very passage. Let's consider what he says. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The point of Hebrews 2 is that the Lord of glory, our Lord Jesus Christ, was for a little while made lower than the angels. That is, that he really did take on human nature such as we possess, and that he did so for an express purpose, for the purpose of tasting death for all mankind. But why was that necessary? The writer of Hebrews goes on to explain that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The Apostle Paul quoted this same passage in 1 Corinthians 15 in a similar way, showing that even though mankind's dominion now is incomplete, we haven't fulfilled it rightly Yet it is ultimately fulfilled in Christ and one day will be completely fulfilled by us, his resurrected followers. We look forward to that day. And so David invites us to worship the Lord because although we are puny and insignificant, he has graciously thought of us and cared for us. Although we marred God's image through sin, God has restored it in Jesus Christ. In him, we are crowned with glory and majesty. And thus we join David in declaring that the Lord's name is indeed majestic in all the earth. David comes full circle and closes the wreath of praise just as he began it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's move into application at this point. I have three next steps for you. Number one is, I will worship the Lord for his majestic greatness. See, one thing is clear. God desires, God invites our praise and worship of him. That's a central theme in this psalm. As as we recognize the majesty of his creation and as we wonder over the fact that he has given us dominion over it, It leads us to declare in awe, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But see, as wonderful as our calling to rule over God's creation is, it, it takes second place to our calling as worshipers. That is the place to begin, to ponder and appreciate God's majesty and glory and to respond in adoration and praise. And yet, as we linger in adoration, something else happens to us. 
we're struck with the realization we have a responsibility, a stewardship to fulfill. God has given us dominion over creation, and we're responsible to him for that, to exercise our calling. And so next step number two is I will embrace the dominion God has called me to fulfill. I will embrace the calling to rule over his creation that he's given me, along with everyone else here. A couple of weeks ago, I was asked to open the House of Representatives in Olympia in prayer. It was a Monday morning of the, prayer, of the March for Life, and Dick Murray had, had extended the invitation to me to come down and pray, and it was a very awesome experience because I'd never even been in the Capitol building, so just to see it and see uh, that body at work was interesting. But one of the things I prayed over that body was that they would recognize their ultimate responsibility to the creator who made them. And that's essentially what we're saying here. Because God has entrusted us with his creation, we're accountable to him for embracing that call and fulfilling our part of it. Each of us has been entrusted with our own realm of responsibility. Our sphere of dominion includes our own lives. It includes our families, our relationships, our our work, our community. For some, that may mean discipling people, discipling their family members. For some, it means leading in church or at school or at work, perhaps even in some part of his creation, if that's where your work takes you. For all of us, it means serving in ministry, finding our place of serving God. You see, Psalm 8 is a clarion call to live at full potential in whatever sphere of the kingdom God has placed us. So embrace your calling, beloved. Identify the people, identify the things God has entrusted to your care and fulfill your stewardship to the best of your ability. And next step three is I will fill in that blank. All right, just asking that you would, if God is saying anything else to you, maybe the Holy Spirit has just given you a little prompting about something else today. Just jot that down so you you won't forget. Maybe it's to study astronomy. Maybe if you do, you should find a Christian astronomer and uh, read their, their point of view about it. All of this comes down to recognizing who we are and who we were born to be. And I want to close with a true story that illustrates that truth. A preacher and a wife were traveling, and it had been a long, tiring day of travel for them. They stopped into a restaurant for a meal, and really all they wanted to do was eat and get back on the road. Just then, an older gentleman walked over to their table and asked where they were from. They didn't really want to talk, but they were too polite to say so, so they told him. And and then he said, well, what do you do for a living? And, of course, the preacher said, I'm a preacher. Really, I have a story that you might find interesting. And so he pulled up a chair to their table and began to tell them his story. And he began like this. My mother wasn't married when I was born. When I started to school, my classmates had a name for me, and it wasn't a very nice name. I used to go off by myself, both at recess and during lunchtime, because of the taunts of my classmates, which cut me deeply. What was worse was going downtown on Saturday afternoon and feeling every eye burning a hole through you. 
They were all wondering who my real dad was. But when I was about 12, a new preacher came to our church. I would always go into church late and slip out early, but one day the preacher said the benediction so fast I got caught and had to walk out with the crowd. He said, I could feel every eye in the church on me. And just about the time I got to the back door, I looked up and the preacher was looking right into my face. Who are you, son? Whose boy are you? And I felt the old weight come upon me again. It was like a big, dark cloud. Even the preacher was putting me down, I thought to myself. But as the preacher looked at me further, studying my face, he began to smile, a great big smile. And he said, wait a minute, I, I know who you are. I see the family resemblance. You are a son of God. And with that, he slapped me across the back and said, boy, you've got a great inheritance. Go and claim it. At that, the old man at the restaurant stood up, picked up his chair, and pushed it away and walked off. When the preacher and his wife went to the cash register to to pay for the meal. The waitress said to them, do you know who that old man was that was talking to you? That was Ben Hooper, the former governor of our state. This is his hometown, and he retired here a few years ago. Just a few words from a preacher telling this young boy he was made in the image of God changed his life. And it can change yours as well. Friend, God has given you a wonderful calling. You're a child of God created in his image. Created to know him and to fulfill his purpose through your life. Which, by the way, is why we offer an invitation at the end of most every service here. As we come to the Lord's table in a few minutes, I'm going to give you the invitation today to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior to allow him to forgive you of your sins and to give you his purpose, his meaning for your life today. Even though we are teeny tiny little people living on a little speck called earth, floating through the vast cosmos that God has created, God knows you. He calls you by name. He's aware of you, and he loves you, and he invites you into a relationship with him that will never end. And that is absolutely amazing.